0: On a basic level, the plan for how to deal with a person who is first coming to the knowledge of God is this. Ordinary means by which a person comes to the knowledge of God is through the preaching of the word. That can be private preaching or it can be public preaching, but it's ordinarily one human being speaking with their mouth the doctrines and exhorting a person to repent and believe. The difference between preaching and teaching is that preaching is teaching with exhortation. Some people will try to tell you there's a mystical element that when you stand behind a pulpit, all of a sudden it's preaching. That is false. Every one of you has the ability and the duty to preach on particular occasions. And that preaching is teaching doctrine and exhorting men to do their duty. That is all preaching is. And the ordinary means by which people are brought to a saving knowledge of God is preaching. Now, As we consider that, as a person comes to the knowledge of God, there's a great danger that they can be manipulated by wolves and that they can have much of their lives wasted and many difficulties from sins. And so it is the duty of the church to seek to bring those who are the most immature in the faith into a good church, to see them nurtured and guarded, to see them catechized, to make it so they come to a place of covenanting, being baptized, and then seeing those people who are covenanted and who are children in the faith brought to a greater maturity, being established in the faith, so that they can be young men who are engaged in the fight. And from there, that they move from being young men to being those who are veterans, those who are mature, fathers in the faith. And of those who are fathers in the faith, those who are the most skilled ought to become elders. Now, when men are young men and they hold conscientiously to the Reformed faith, they, if they have other character qualifications in place, could at that point be fit for the office of deacon. But our goal is to see children become young men and young men to become fathers and not to see an arrested development where people are perpetual children. And our goal is not simply to have young men And to make them stay in the young men's status so that there's an ability to retain power. The goal is to see people move along in progress from children, young men, to fathers. And to launch out. Not to build a mega church, but to see the church take over the world. And so the goal is to have men who can be sent out. Now, when you look at the idea of these categories... We think about children, and children are defined for us in the Johannine text, 1 John, that i mentioned to you. The first thing it says is, and you can look at the top of, of the handout, it has it there. In, in verse 12, I write to you little children because your sins are forgiven you for, your, for his name's sake. I write to you little children because you have known the Father. So notice children in the faith have their sins forgiven, and they know God. They have a knowledge of God. This is not a forgiveness of sins apart from the knowledge of God. It is not a knowledge of God waiting for the forgiveness of sins. It is a knowledge of God and the forgiveness of sins. Next, as we think about what a father is, which is the goal. We want people to become fathers, to be mature. Hey, look at verse 13. I write to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. Well, that's interesting. Because what we see about children is that they have known the Father. Is the Father the one that was from the beginning? Yes. So they know the same God. So when we look at what fathers are, and we continue down the list, we go to verse 14, it says, I have written to you fathers because you have known Him who is from the beginning. It says that twice. When you have repetition... In the Bible, what does that mean? I've repeated this a lot. That is right. It is important. There is an emphasis on it. And so, first, it is important that you grow in the knowledge of God. Secondly, the thing to know about fathers that is distinct from children is they know more about God. They know more about God. So, what happens as you're maturing in the faith what is faith? Faith is understanding what God has revealed and believing it is true. A more mature faith will know more truths that God has revealed than a less mature faith. and It will have more error removed. And so the way you mature is by growing in the knowledge of God, learning more truth about God from the Scriptures and believing it. Your goal is to apply that so that you can show other people. Right, If Father... Is somebody who's nurturing children and guarding them. So what's a young man? The in-between stage. The young man. Look at verse 13. Look at the middle of verse 13. It says, I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. Overcome or conquer. The idea here is that they have started to put their bodies to service, to righteousness. And they have started to overcome the world and its captain the devil they are resisting the devil and his rule of the world he's been bound but he has leftover demons that are ruling various parts and he we are young men are a part of the fight to remove demonic power and to see the world turning to the church and to see fleshly dominion of persons replaced with spirit rule. Now look at verse 14. The middle of the verse. I have written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. The abiding of the word its, it's, it's steadiness in the person is an indicator of of increased maturity. The conquering comes out of that. The strength comes out of that. If you want fortitude and you want to overcome the devil and you want to be stable, you must grow in the knowledge of God. So that's context for this category set of children, young men, fathers, okay? This is a scripture blueprint for the Christian life. And so we need to deal with that, realizing the church is a collection of individuals and households. The church is a collection of individuals and households. And so how do we see individuals matured and see households put into good order? It is by understanding the method of growing people and understanding the path of that growth and the dangers that can occur. So when we talk about children in the faith, this does not mean necessarily a child. We talked about how a person can be converted by the preaching of the word and just come from the world. But here's the other thing. Somebody can simply be raised in a covenant home and hear the word from they know not when and believe when they know not when. But always, as far as their memory is concerned, be a person who believed the word and that there was a trickle of nurture and gradual growth as a plant in a garden. And so those of you with children, I am sure that is your desire, that your children would be those who are protected and would grow in the garden. And for those of you who came from outside of the garden and have entered into the Lord's garden, you know it is rough out there, and you want to keep them from going out there until they are ready to fight. You do not send children into battle, you send young men into battle And you send old men to lead them. It is necessary that people be ready for battle before you send them into battle. If a commander takes untrained troops and throws them into a meat grinder, their blood is on his hands. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why the idea that you would send children into the public schools in order to be missionaries is such a wicked idea. So we need to realize it's our duty to feed, clothe, and shelter our children. And when people say you're sheltering your children, you go, yes, I feed them and I clothe them too. You shelter them until they are ready to not be protected. The process of catechesis is this. You teach them the truth. And as you teach them the truth, and they begin to be firmed up in the faith, You gradually expose them to the evil of the world. Art and controlled engagements are ways you can do that. You do not shelter them into adulthood. You shelter them and gradually unveil for them the wickedness of the world. If you take a child and expose the wickedness of the world to them all at once, you will pervert and distort them. If you take a child and you gradually while teaching them the truth and then gradually show them the evil of the world and explain to them how it must be overcome, why it is wicked, what must replace it, that there is hope because Christ will be victorious. Then you help them to understand the fight. So that is our duty. That's our goal for this maturing. Whether we're dealing with a literal child or whether we're dealing with a novice believer who is an adult... So I have a definition for you of what a child is. Look at page one. What is a child in the faith, or what's a novice? A child in the faith is someone who is immature in the reformed faith of any age and needs to be protected for the ability to focus on, one, being nurtured for growth, and two, being established for stability. Okay. I want you to imagine first this scenario. Here's someone that you're discipling, you're teaching them, you're telling them to take in certain doctrines and to read certain things, and they are focused on it. They're reading it. They're listening to the stuff. They're doing the workbook. You didn't even give them a workbook. Where'd they get the workbook? And, And they're just doing the things that you want them to do. They're focused on the stuff that is in the Scriptures, and they're focused on doing the stuff that you're trying to help them along. Those people will focus on then trying to apply it. And they will be able to... Become accustomed and habituated faster. Now, here's the alternative. Imagine you have somebody who you're trying to disciple, and at the same time they're looking up all sorts of contradictory stuff and trying to examine things that are not foundational, but are things all over the periphery. And they're trying to deal with that stuff, and they're asking you about this. And what do you think about UFOs? Do you think they're demons, or do you think they're yeah, they're demons? And so that being the case, we're going to not focus on those. So if that's happening, you know, if there's this focusing on all the stuff. As opposed to foundation, lay foundation, build up the basic things, hedge around, protect. So if you don't focus on those foundational things, and instead there's this, you know, going off and chasing off everything, and there's listening to all sorts of awful teachers, and you have to combat that, the growth of that person is going to be way slower. Now, nobody wants to do this, okay? Okay. Everybody wants to go look at whatever thing catches their fancy at the moment. They want to talk about whatever they want to talk about. We do not have good training for how to deal with authority in America. And so the idea of being discipled feels un-American. You go like, like, this feels oppressive. It's like, I'm asking you to read five pages before we meet next. This is oppressive to you? So the problem with getting people to engage is serious. And so if we're going to work together on this and create a culture where we encourage people to pursue serious discipleship, we need to have some idea of what we're trying to engage on and what the foundational things are before they go off and you know, are trying to figure out how to properly define the Nephilim and whether or not they are human-demon you know, mixed breed. They are not. They're humans. So that stuff, that's what people want to go look at all the stuff on the periphery. And instead, what we want to encourage them to do is engaging on growth on the basic things. And we need to encourage them to develop stability. So what's the goal of this document? The goal of this document is one to identify novices. So you know the difference between a novice and somebody who's not Two. To instruct those novices how to be established in the foundation of the faith so that they will not be blown about by every wind of doctrine but can start to build with stability. Okay? And that's an attractive thing because this being blown about is not fun. And so if you happen to, Lord bless you, get somebody who is willing to just focus and go through the stuff, fantastic. And if you find somebody wants to get discipled, but then they want to go all over the place into everything else, then you can keep telling them when they're in pain, here's what I want you to come back to for stability. This will help you to exit pain land faster. And so this is the path out. This is the path to stability. Three, this helps novices to move beyond immaturity so they can be useful for themselves and for others. If you go out and you're evangelizing on the street, for example, and you've got somebody with you who is unskilled at it, and you're trying to evangelize, and that person jumps in and brings up stuff that's totally unhelpful and irrelevant, that will make your time far less fruitful. So what we want is for people to understand how to be useful. And so here's part of the proposal that I'm asking you all to consider. And that before we vote on it with the Council of Officers, that you give feedback on this. I believe that nobody should be involved in external-facing ministry until they have completed a course of study as a child to become a young man. And that there should be some sort of a way that that is tested. So if you don't like the sound of that, write that down and murmur before we adopt this. Four, this is a document that's meant to help those who want to nurture, guard, and see novices established in the foundations of the faith so that the novice can become a young man in the faith who is stable and not a source of chaos, but who instead can participate in the work as a fellow soldier and laborer alongside other saints. Now, What is a child in the faith? This is how you identify them, okay? Here's my other request for you. Bring this paper back to church until we have completed the teaching on being a child and being matured to a young man, okay? Because this is going to take probably more than one time talking about it. So here's what a child in the faith looks like. He believes the scripture is the word of God. He confesses that. That is foundational. If a person does not believe that the scriptures are the word of God, they are not a Christian. Period. They have broken God's law and deserve everlasting punishment. They they understand this doctrine. They understand that Christ, the Son of God, lived perfectly to merit reward for believers and died on the cross to pay for the guilt debt of believers. So they understand the basics of the gospel as a substitutionary atonement. They understand the redemption purchased by Christ applies to them because God gave them faith. So they might have a weak assurance where sometimes... They're like, I don't know, am I really saved? And you say, well, is this the gospel? Is that true? And they say, yeah, it's true. Okay, then you believe it, and that means you're saved, right? Now, that person could be lying to me. Can I read their mind? No. But if they claim to understand and believe the gospel as it is in the scriptures, then they are saved unless they're lying. Five. Five. They need to grow in their understanding of doctrine and application of the law, turning more and more from unbelief and sin unto belief and righteousness. So in other words, they acknowledge that Christ is their Lord and that they need to obey him and believe what he teaches and that it's good for them to do that. If somebody says that they believe the gospel and they include in that a statement that they do not believe that Jesus has authority to tell them what to believe and what to do, that person doesn't believe the gospel because what are they being saved from if not failing to believe and do what God has revealed? Okay, so if they don't understand the problem of their guilt, they certainly don't understand the solution of Christ paying for their sins and providing them with a righteousness as a covering. So this is The definition of a child in the faith. So, how do we treat children in the faith? So, notice that, by the way. This document is not a document about how to become a child. That, right there, is the stuff you need to become a child. Super short, very short, some other word for super short. Now, the rest of this document is about how to go from a child to a young man. So it's longer. So when you look at this and you go, this seems like a lot for a child. Yes, it's what a child needs to stop being a child and become a young man. And at the same time, these things are Elementary. This stuff is elementary. Now, page two. Children of the faith, here's how they need to be treated. They need to be nurtured. So if you're trying to build them up, if you're trying to nurture them, if you're trying to increase their knowledge of God, that means you need to encourage and support them during the Reformation process. Because going from the world to the church is rough because you have all sorts of sin that you love and are having a real hard time giving up. And you also hate it because you realize that God's law is the truth about what's good and what's evil. And so you have this mixture. But it's really painful. And you long for the leeks and onions of Egypt. And like Lot's wife, have a Strong desire to look back at Sodom that you have just fled out of. There is this strong, strong desire there. And children in the faith have not learned to overcome the wicked one yet. They have a hard time overcoming sin. And so they need help maturing to the point where they are strong and able to overcome sin. So you need to encourage them and support them. So let me let me tell you what that also means. That means you're going to see so much sin in their lives that you're like, I don't even know where to start. And as you look at their lives, you could choose two possible paths. One, I'm just going to do nothing but rebuke this person like a rebuke machine gun. This is going to not just be a rebuke machine gun, it's going to be a Gatling gun. It's going to be 3,600 rebukes per minute. The alternative is, you choose to overlook about 3,599 possible things every minute and 3,600 of them most minutes. So that means there's so much sin that you have to overlook because you're going, I need to figure out which thing needs to be focused on in this person's life to help them along. And you engage with them based upon the principles that we use for prioritization and conflict resolution. You've got to deal with crimes. And you have to deal with stuff where other believers bring it up. And you have to deal with stuff where it's a settled hatred of God or neighbor. Or where there's a settled bucking against some doctrine that the scriptures plainly reveal. When a person's just not sure about the form of words yet and all that, you don't constantly nitpick everything they ever say and you try to figure out what you think they mean, even if the wording isn't exactly the best, and you're trying to encourage them along and support them during the Reformation process. Do you guys have any idea how often I hear you say things that I wish you said differently? Probably not. Because I restrain myself from saying all of the things that I could say, because it would exasperate you. Two. Two. Clear, concise, and consistent teaching in basic doctrines. They are small-necked vessels and need to be taught in manageable pieces. Manageable pieces. So the consistent giving of little bits of truth. The consistent giving of little bits of truth. This is true of children. This is true of new believers. The consistent giving of little bits of truth. Now, there are some times we're going to have really long conversations, the person's really engaged, Fantastic. If the person looks like they're about to fall over, you go, let's get together again another time. And you ask them about stuff that's going to help them, that they're really concerned or interested in. Three, simple explanations for false doctrines and practices to avoid. So there's some stuff that you got to deal with, like, if you know a person who's coming out of Islam, or New Age, or Catholicism, or Arminianism, or Mormonism, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or whatever, you've got to help them to deal with the false doctrine that they are coming out of, and you help them to think about false doctrine they're likely to run into, but you don't go through every false doctrine that you could ever possibly deal with. Well, I went to the wrong thing, forgive me. I went to the second part about how to guard them, and so forgive me. Jump back up to the earlier part, it's point three under there, which is the nurturing. Patience with their ignorance. Okay, patience with their ignorance. They are not going to know a lot of things, and you're going to want to tell them all the things, because all the things you know, you feel like are all the things that everyone needs to know, until you realize that you know a lot. Once you realize you know a lot, you go, I can't teach somebody all the things I know. And so I have to manage the time on that, which means I've got to pick an order to distribute the knowledge. And I need to have other people know how to teach the things that have to be taught over and over and over again, because that could use up all of my time. So what are those basic things? Well, that's on the paper. And so you try to go from the more basic to the less basic. The authority of Scripture is the most basic thing. Four, they need gentle rebukes for their bad habits, and you need to focus on the big problems rather than the little ones. You focus on the camels rather than the gnats. If you strain at gnats in their lives, while you leave the really big problems alone, the camels that are in the tent, you are making it so that there is an imbalance. You're encouraging them to a type of self-righteousness. Now, just to remind you of this, gnats are the smallest unclean animal in the law, and camels are the largest unclean animal in the law. So the idea is it's equating unclean animals to sins. Okay? So that also helps us to interpret the ceremonial law of kosher eating by the way. It's a symbol, type and ceremony, a type and shadow pointing to the idea of sin. 5 They need to be invited to receive hospitality from house to house. They need to build relationship. And in that hospitality, there needs to be teaching that's given. So make sure to include them in your family worship. Make sure to talk to them while you have them there about fruitful things. You want to show them an example of a Christian home and enculturation. That helps them to understand what they're trying to emulate helps them to catch it, and helps them to see the beauty of it. And that cements relationship. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, last night about the idea that, you know, in the world it's, it's crazy how little hospitality there is, how, how rarely people will invite people over to their homes, and at the same time also how little there is of opening up and giving transparency in life. And so this is the work that needs to be done to help people to build relationship. It's helping people in hospitality, with teaching, example and inculcation, participation in family worship, and helping to establish relationship. Now here's how you guard children in the faith. Here's what they need. They need examples and practice in applying more basic to less basic principles and arguments and life applications. So If you are a more mature Christian and you just go chase down all the stuff that's interesting and shiny and talk about that all the time and do not seek to talk to people about the more basic things, you are going to give them an example of disorderly life and conversation. And so that idea that you have to focus on the basics, you think about a master of anything, they are excellent at the basic forms, a master of anything is excellent at the basic forms. And if you aren't excellent at the basic forms, you are not doing anything with more advanced forms. And so being a master of the basic forms is something that allows you to go engage on the things on the periphery. Two, to hear sound patterns of words in defense of the truth. So that means we need to do things like Be well aware of our confessional standard and use those to talk with each other. We need to know the scriptures and communicate with the scriptures. We need to know how to deal with things that are objections to the word of God and to be able to answer those things in a way that's helpful for others. If you deal with objections to the Christian religion by offhandedly throw off stuff that might get somebody to stop objecting, that is not good. What you want are clear, excellent arguments. What you want is to use those repeatedly as opposed to trying to find more and more novel ways of explaining something. The truth is not novel. The truth is not novel. The truth doesn't change. The truth is eternal. And so what you want is to be able to give sound patterns of words in defense of the truth. Three. Simple explanations for false doctrines and practices to avoid. So as stuff comes up, you're dealing with that, or things that you think are likely places where there's a pit this person might fall into. Four, inclusion in church life and mission. So that's, they start to do some service in the church, but it's inside of stuff where you're helping other people in the church as opposed to outward facing. And it's hospitality focused. It's very important to get involved in service early. Because you want the habit of service. If somebody is not brought into service early, they are less likely to feel involved. They are less likely to have the good habit of blessing other people. They are more likely to create problems and be difficult. If they're working together, if we're working together with people, then it helps everybody along to have good habits. And so finding ways for people to be involved in service where they're blessing people inside of the church helping with things inside of the church and also helping in a hospitality context are the ways that you help people who are immature to become involved in service. Children of the faith need to be taught to avoid heretical teaching and they need to be encouraged to really focus on the stuff that is given to them by the church until they're established in the faith and have completed training as a young man in the faith. They want to. They need to consume recommended Reformed resources. They need to look at good stuff there. So as opposed to just going and reading whatever things, like here's a Roman Catholic apologist, or here's some secular conservative, or whatever. Here's some guy that claims to be a preacher and I have no idea what confession of faith he holds to. What you do is you look at the Westminster Standards, you listen to recordings from the teaching of this church and other churches that have a like faith and practice that we would encourage. There's a bookshelf over here of books that we have purchased that we are giving away. Just passing them out. Just hand to whoever wants them. This idea that you can just take these books and go study them. So if you don't like it and you want audio stuff, you want video stuff, well, great, we got that too. But there is stuff that's worth going through. And if you just go chase down whatever YouTube feeds you because you find this to be boring, that's a you problem and you need to overcome that. You need to exercise discipline and look at stuff that is worth looking at so that you can be formed faster. We want to encourage people to do that. To avoid heretical teaching until they are established in the faith and have completed training as a young man in the faith so that they are ready to go out and deal with things. Stuff's going to come across your path, but don't go walking around looking for trouble. What you're doing is you're trying to get established and become firm and mature. Six, to avoid external facing service until established in the faith and completed training as a young man of the faith. And Sorry, that should say completed training. Um, both of those, uh, the, not as young man, but as a child. So you become a young man. So completed training, not as a young man, but to become. So to become a young man. So both of those, five and six. So the idea is not that you have to be a father in order to start some of those things. The idea is that you have to Complete training as a child and become a young man. Um, right. so what are the key resources that you want somebody to focus on when they are starting out as a child in the faith? Okay, look at the bottom of page two. First, they need a Bible. They should be reading the Bible. Second, they need a psalter. And they need help being able to sing a few basic songs, a few basic psalms so they can do private worship and household worship without anybody else. They need a shorter catechism, and they need the church covenant. Those are the basic things they need. They need to focus on certain parts of scripture. Genesis 1 through 9, the book of John, the book of Romans, are great foundational texts for somebody to start wrestling through. Proverbs chapters 1 through 9 are the chapters that are for the young man. And so, or sorry, for the child, for the child in the faith. So those are the things that we want to encourage people to focus on. And this document is a resource for them as well. So, page three, go to page three. Page three, what we have is the book of Hebrews lays out the axioms, the foundational things, the basic things of the Christian religion. And the text reads as follows. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection or maturity is a better translation there not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Okay, so I've laid out here, you know, what these things would include. Okay, the repentance from dead works is you understand the covenant of works and your guilt in it. Faith toward God involves understanding who God is and and understanding the Trinity, the Incarnation, and the grace of God given to us in the covenant of grace. The doctrine of baptism is understanding what baptism is and what it means. The doctrine of laying on of hands has to do with transferring. Hand laying is about transferring. And it's a symbol for transfer of power, for transferring guilt, transferring uh, healing and blessing. Those are all things that are used there. Five, on on page four, you have the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. And you have... Six, everlasting judgment. These are all things that are being laid out for us as basic doctrines. And so what I want to suggest to you is the stuff that we're talking through here is included inside of these categories. Okay, so the basics here are inside of that. And we might go, baptisms? This is basic? Baptisms? Or the laying out of hands? Like, this is not the six things I would have picked. Not the list of six that I would have gone for. That's, that's when we think about that but what is that about well first of all with baptisms it's about understanding covenant and being cleansed from sin and about the ongoing cleansing and sanctification what about the laying of hands it's about the idea of authority and conflict resolution and blessing and so there's all this stuff in there that is basic to the Christian life the importance of the blessing of lawful authority and when we look at repentance from dead works, obviously I think almost all of us would just have immediately said, yeah, that needs to be there. Faith toward God, sure, but does that just mean believing in the definition of God? No, it's it's about, in contrast to dead works, it's about believing in the mercy of God, It's believing the gospel. And then we have the ones that are at the end there, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. Well, that makes it so that we realize that we don't end. So all of our activities have an eternal weight of glory associated with them or an eternal weight of shame and lastly the everlasting judgment makes it so that that's all something that's going to come into judgment and there will be rewards and penalties so these things give to us an outline of the basics of the faith and I have tried to organize for you some of where the things that we're talking about fit underneath those but I want to move to now, what is the content here that needs to be focused on when you're, when you're teaching somebody? Okay? First of all, we have the five solas, which hopefully are very familiar to you. The five solas need to be taught on, and we need to be careful to teach on them properly and to deal with things like the misdefinition of grace. Right. Some people don't understand that grace is God's desire for someone's good, that they not only have not earned, but in fact they have earned the opposite. Right? So demerited favor that is irresistible. God does what he wants. Definition of faith, that it's understanding and believing doctrine. What what kind of doctrine? What's the saving doctrine? The gospel. Okay, so we, we have those particularities. Then go to page five. You have Christ alone as the mediator, and what his work is. And to God alone, be the glory. In other words, this plan works together to glorify God as opposed to giving the glory to anybody else. So the five solas, scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory to God alone, are absolutely necessary for somebody to have any sort of stability about the gospel. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity in order for them to understand the distinction of the persons of the Trinity and think about Christ is necessary. And I've got there where this is in our church vows and where it is in the Shorter Catechism. But the doctrine of the Trinity is something you can study a lot and have a lot of detailed knowledge of. And I'm not saying a child needs that. I'm saying what a child needs in order to become a young man is they need to understand the definition is this. There's one definition of God and there are three persons that meet that definition. That's it. Now, if you understand what the definition of God is, and you understand what the definition of a person is, and how those three persons meet that definition, you understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay? Now, how the Trinity works together is laid out in covenants. And so we need to remember, go to there's Roman numeral three here at the bottom of page five there's the covenant It's called the intra-Trinitarian covenant. Intra is inside of, and it's Trinitarian. So it's inside of the Trinity. So what's the covenant between the members of the Trinity? Well, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all agree to do certain things. And that's how they have their distinct roles. And so if we understand that, and understand that the agreement is that they're each going to do their, their separate roles in order to glorify each other, then we have a basic idea of what the agreement is, why they have distinct roles, even though they are equal as God. And we understand that the goal is to glorify each other. So that's why God made the world. That's why he governs history to be the way it is. That's the agreement. And so this gives us the background for understanding the way other things work. The covenant of works is an agreement, a covenant, between God and Adam imposed by God, Adam didn't have the opportunity to reject it. There's uh, a covenant between God and Adam in which Adam is required to perfectly obey everything God commanded. And he represented all of his descendants that would come through ordinary generation. In other words, through the ordinary process of having children. There's things that are in there like God gave dominion, he gave you know, Sabbath, he gave work. He establishes the household as well as just having the individual Adam. This is not; He's not just alone there. There's a granting of the household. So those are all established there. And then we have the covenant of grace, which is Christ as a second Adam coming. This is on page 6. Christ as a second Adam coming and representing all of the elect, everybody that God has predestined to salvation. And what he... Has done, is made it so that Christ comes there and he pays for the sins of his people and he provides faith by the power of his Holy Spirit to everybody that the Father has chosen back in that intra-Trinitarian covenant that's given in the covenant of grace. Okay, so these are the three covenant structures that organize the way we understand the Bible. Okay, you have these given in the beginning. The, the covenant of works is given for us in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The covenant of grace is given for us in Genesis 3. And the fact that there's an agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is laid out for us elsewhere in the scriptures, but especially it's plain in the beginning of Ephesians. So, all we have is those covenants are necessary to have a basic outline of scripture. Here, If you don't understand that, what you're going to be prey to is either Rome's view that scripture is just one monolithic covenant, in which case you blend faith and works for salvation. Or you're going to have what's called dispensationalism, where the Bible is broken up into all these airtight compartments as opposed to a continuous building. And you're not going to know how to read the Bible. The, 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 the doctrine of the covenant of works and a covenant of grace makes it so that you can understand the way this scripture works. So I'm going to lay out later in this, you, know, you need to know the covenant institutions, and you can see where those get mapped out, which is why Genesis 1 through 9 is so important to understand the rest of the Bible. So, the incarnation. The incarnation is this. Christ is two natures, divine and human. is two minds, divine and human, that are united by covenant as one legal person. Okay, that's that's a very short statement about what the Incarnation is. And this is explained in Vow 4, and it's also in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. and So those are laid out for the explanation. But, but that's it. You don't need to have all the defenses. You don't need to have all that. You don't need to give all the arguments. It's that. That's what a child being established looks like. Now, when challenges come, when they're a young man, okay, what's going to happen is you're a young man in the faith, and you're doing battle, and people are going to raise all these objections And because you are established in the faith, because you know what the faith is, you're going to then go, I don't know how to answer this objection, and I need to go study. That's what spiritual combat does. When you know what the claims are, and somebody challenges them, and you hear some argument and you go, that sounds kind of like a good argument, I don't know how to answer that, it forces you to study. Now, if these things are true, And you're a believer, guess what that's going to result in? You coming to a stronger view of the truth. Now, if this is false, then there will be arguments to tear it down. If it's true, the arguments that sound plausible are things you're going to learn to to defeat. But until you understand what the Reformed faith is even saying, you're not going to be able to go out and teach it. You're not going to be able to go out and apply it. So five, Roman numeral five, the good, the goal, good for man, the doxological focus. Okay, so the good is the most valuable thing. God is the most valuable thing. He's the thing to be sought after. He's the thing we trade for. We never trade away. So people need to understand that. They need to understand that the good is not pleasure. The good is not just, you know, uh, trying to get power. It's not trying to get money. It's not any of that stuff. The good is actually trying to grow in the knowledge of God. The good is God, and we possess God by knowing him. So then we think about things like the goal for humanity as a whole, which is to glorify God in the earth. And that's what God's purpose is in history, going back to that covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's God's purpose. This is our purpose as a group, and we as individuals accomplish that purpose by knowing God and applying his law. That is how we know him and show him. That's how we glorify him. And so the good life is seeking to apply God's law. That's that's what's laid out here. Here's the stuff that somebody needs to know. So they can go, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. And they should focus their lives on the glory of God. That's the doxological focus. You go, how should I live? What attitude should I have? In any situation I'm in, should I be maximizing my pleasure here, my money here, my power here? Or should I be maximizing how I can glorify God in this situation? Only with that kind of frame of mind are you going to be the kind of person who on your deathbed thinks, how can I die well for the glory of God? The difference between a person who is selfishly seeking to be comforted in their last moments versus a person who is selflessly trying to serve others in their last moment. That is the difference between a person who is focused on the glory of God and someone who is focused on something else. Now, think about all the small things that that would apply to if it can apply to you on your deathbed. And so in all of the small things, there's this inconvenience, here's this problem, here's this thing to overcome, here's this travail, here is a blessing. How do you respond? Do you attribute that blessing to God or do you say, yeah, I did this? When the trouble comes, do you say, this comes from the hand of God and he will sustain me? Or do you say, woe is me and start blaming God? Right, the doxological focus is Seeking to glorify God in the moment. And here's the thing. That will actually give you the most happiness. And so everything else is an idol. A false god. A false good. And so this is thinking about how to apply that in life in a basic way. Am I saying that to stop being a child you have to apply this perfectly? No. I'm saying you need to, at a really basic level, understand this claim. To stop being a child. Tulip. The doctrines of tulip are a defense around the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. If you reject tulip, you are rejecting salvation by grace alone. So tulip lays out principles. These, are, these five points are commonly called Calvinism. Calvinism is captured in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So you want to know what Calvinism is, read the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, but this is supposed to be things that are distinctive of Calvinism, and these are not things that Calvinists sat around and went, you know what we should do is we should come up with a list of five points called Calvinism, and gave out the list. This came from people called the Remonstrants, who were in the Protestant churches, who put forward the five points of Arminianism against Calvinism, and they said, you know, people have some goodness in them, and you know, what if God chooses based upon what people he foresees them doing? And what if Jesus died for everybody and not just the elect? And how about, what if people could resist grace? Like God wants to save them, but he can be frustrated. And what if people could be saved and then lose their salvation? Maybe those are biblical. Don't kick us out. And the response of the Calvinists was totally appropriate to say, that's unbiblical, we're kicking you out. You are heretics. Totally appropriate response, because these things attack the gospel at the heart. Man is not good that is why we need a savior you have nothing good in you to save yourself with you can't contribute to your salvation that's total depravity unconditional election and reprobation god doesn't choose you based upon something he foresees in you and he doesn't choose to save people because he's stuck with a problem of the fall he plans the fall for the purpose of displaying his justice and his mercy the third one limited atonement jesus paid for the sins of his people Okay, I've got the the four points there from from Owen. This is a fantastic thing to think about. So I'm going to... Limited atonement is the one that people have the hardest time with. So you're going to run into this over and over again. So I'm going to read this one and talk to you about it. Limited atonement. Christ's work on the cross to save is perfect and complete. Everyone that he came to save is truly and completely saved. And no one is saved that he did not come to save. Okay, now here are four views. View A. If Christ died for all of the sins of everyone, then everyone would be saved. But here's the problem. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that some people are not. So if the gospel is true, this position is not true. If this position is true, then the gospel is false. Because Jesus is a liar. When he said that there would be people who are going to Gehenna. To hell. So... B, if Christ died for some of the sins of everyone, then nobody's saved because they have some sins that weren't paid for. C, if Christ died for some of the sins of some people, okay, still nobody's saved. The people who didn't have any sins paid for are going to hell, and the people who had some of their sins paid for are still going to hell for their sins that were not paid for. So D, only if Christ died to pay for all of the sins of some people can anyone be saved. And so that's what the Bible teaches. Here's the logical possibilities. Irresistible grace is the doctrine that God saves whom he will. He, if he desires to save a person, he will accomplish that goal. He does all that he pleases. We can't resist his plans. If he chooses us, he will effectually bring about our salvation. The perseverance or preservation of the saints. God will complete the good work that he has started in a believer. You cannot lose your salvation. The golden chain in Romans chapter. 8 verses 28 through 30 teaches that plainly. So that's TULIP. And TULIP is is a position that if somebody doesn't understand it, they're not going to have a strong ability to have assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is something where you need the perseverance of the saints and you need to realize that Christ has accomplished your salvation. You need to know that God has chosen to accomplish this goal or else you're not going to be sure that you're actually saved. This is something that allows you to have stability. The doctrines of TULIP allow you to have a stability about your salvation that makes it so that you are able to rely upon the fact that God is for you and not against you in an unchanging way. So, the covenant institutions. So, first of all, we already talked about the covenant of works, the covenant of grace. Um, The covenant of grace is broken into two big parts. There's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant goes from Genesis chapter 3 where God institutes animal sacrifice and he gives the gospel to Adam and Eve and it goes all the way until Christ comes. Okay, and so you've got, here's the big figures. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David in the Old Covenant. Those are the big points where there's significant change in the Old Covenant. The New Covenant is the same covenant of grace but we have... The stuff we do, we have the Lord's Supper, we have baptism, we have, we have the smaller number of things that are a part of our religious worship, as opposed to the temple and the priesthood, and all of the stuff associated with that. So we have this simple order. So we're in the new covenant, and we understand that there's one covenant of grace going from Adam in Genesis 3 all the way forward in history, and that Christ brings in the new covenant. So that's what we're in. When we talk about the New Testament or the New Covenant, those are the same things. Now, Genesis chapters 1 through 9 gives to us the origin of the four institutions that exist inside of the covenantal order that God has given. So what the individual is and what the duties are of the individual and how he has a relationship with God is laid out in Genesis 1 and 2. Same with the household the church is instituted in Genesis chapter 3 and there's a focus on the church as distinct from the world up until chapter 6 verse 8 and then you get to chapter 6 verse 9 and all the way through chapter 9 and it focuses on the need for the state to restrain violence and the way that God wiped out wickedness and preserved eight souls, and then gave a renewal of the covenant of grace with the authority to use the sword to avenge. So those institutions, the individual, the household, the church, and the state, you need to understand those basic jurisdictions or else you're not going to have any idea where duties fall. Okay, And so knowing those institutions is basic to life so that you know where duties fall. Now, A young man is going to start really working through the details of those lines of jurisdiction. A child in the faith is going to know that those things exist, and that's where the duties exist. Eight, the law. People need the two great commandments as an organizing principle. They need the Ten Commandments to explain further underneath that. And they need to understand that there's an explanation of what those mean in the shorter catechism. So I've got here really brief summaries of the various commandments. And there's a bunch of threes that relate to the law that people need to have a, an understanding of, of the law. There's a triple obligation, the three definitions, the three uses, the three types, and the three levels. This is not something somebody needs to know about in exhaustive detail. But the idea that these things are present is something they need to understand or else they're going to be totally confused. Okay? I remember grinding through the Bible, having no idea how to deal with all this stuff. And I will tell you what, if somebody introduces you early on in your faith to these ideas, it will make life so much easier for you. So let me spend a minute on these right now. The triple obligation is the idea that everybody's obligated to obey God because he made everybody. Secondly, those who are in the church, the visible church, have a duty to obey God because he's our covenant God. Thirdly, People who have been saved have a duty to obey God because he bought you by the blood of Jesus. And so he owns you three ways. So everybody's owned by God in at least one way. Some people are owned by God in two ways. And some people are owned by God in three ways. If you are a creature, you are in the church, and you have been saved by the blood of Jesus, you owe God obedience for three reasons. Three definitions. When you see the word law, it can be used in three ways. And when you're reading the Bible and you see the law, you need to try to figure out in the context which one is being used. Is it talking about the commandments? Is it talking about the Old Testament? Or is it using the word law as a shorthand way of referring to the whole word of God? The three uses, right? We've talked about the Bible, the word, sorry, the law of God, the commandments of God, is a mirror that shows you your need of a Savior. It's a chain that restrains evil, and it's a lamp that shows the way of wisdom. There are three types of law. There are moral laws, which are our duties even today. There's the civil law in the Old Testament, which has principles that we need to apply, but is not binding in exhaustive detail, and there is ceremonial law in the old testament which are types and shadows or moral teachings and we need to understand how those are brought to us either as a foreshadowing of christ or as some moral principle that is also explaining the moral law and then there are three levels of law and this is how we deal with for example the two great commandments and then we have the ten commandments organized underneath the three levels of the law are there's the big commands that are principles There are case laws which fit underneath those if-then statements, right? So we have, like, you shall not steal There's a principle. Here's a case law. If you steal somebody's ox and then sell it, that is something where you have to pay five times the value of the ox. If you steal the ox and are found with it before you sell it, there's a lesser penalty. In other words, the more extensively you go into the sin, the further you are along... The more obvious it is that you are unrepentant and the bigger the penalty so that's the idea there the case laws give us teaching about the details and then there's approved or disapproved examples jesus did this you know it's approved david did that and god punishes him okay you know it was disapproved those are the things that we use to interpret the examples so that we understand how things work so we're going to stop here that's the section of the law and these are things that make it so that you have a ability to deal with the law and apply it in your own life. There's way more to learn about the law. If you haven't read Question 99 of the Larger Catechism, it's fantastic. But guess what? That is not something that we are saying, here's something that children need to know. It's how do you start to apply in greater detail. That's a young man and father's type of thing. But these are the things that, If you don't get the stuff here about the law, then you're not going to be able to really use the law very effectively at all for your own life. You're going to have to basically muddle around and ask others. And so you would stay in childhood. So to get out of childhood, you need these understandings about the law so that you can avoid the immaturity. Here are the things that somebody needs to understand at a basic level in order to be able to be firmed up as a child. Remember, we talked about the fact that these things are not necessary to be a child. Being a child in the faith requires this small set of things that were on the front, which mainly has to do with the idea of understanding the authority of the Word of God and understanding the Gospel and its narrow sense of the saving message of Jesus Christ paying for sins and providing us with righteousness as a covering. Now, these are the things to Get through to be able to be a young man. And children in the faith are people that we need to nurture and guard, and then we need to help to prepare them. Young men start to do battle. Young men start to participate in the fight. Young men are able to go out and be with and to help those who are mature. And so one of the things that we talked about is public-facing ministry. The other thing would be, for example, you need to complete this children's section, in order to receive officer training or to be an assistant to officers. And so, the outward and ordinary means of grace is the next part here. So, page 9, Roman numeral 9. The outward and ordinary means of grace. Okay, so first of all, what are outward and ordinary means of grace? These are the stuff we do that's external that helps to bring internal growth. Okay, we, we're not creating grace of God. And we're not effectually making him sanctify us. What we're talking about here, the outward and ordinary means of grace are the things that we use that we ask with prayer for God to bless and we expect that he will use them to cause us to grow. So the outward and ordinary means of grace are, look at point four, all of the ordinances of God. So anything that God commands is a thing that we would expect God to use When it is joined with the word as a basis for doing it and prayer to bless it, we would expect it to be used to cause us to grow in sanctification. However, when someone is immature in the faith, it is not helpful to throw a really long list of stuff for them to do at them to memorize all of those ordinances, especially since those things are oftentimes associated with positions of authority. And so we look at what are the three that they need to emphasize. Well, they need to go into the Word. They need to read the Bible, meditate on the Bible, study the Bible. They need to hear preaching. They need to do their private worship, and they need to do their household worship, where the Word of God is being taken in. They need to deal with the sacraments. They need to be baptized, and they need to take the Lord's Supper. So they need to understand the sacraments. They need to pray consistently. And so those are the main ones that we want to emphasize, along with, I talked earlier about the fact that we want to give a few psalms that people are comfortable singing on their own so that they can sing for their private worship. But these things, knowing how to pray well, knowing how to engage with the Bible well and preaching, and knowing about the sacraments and how to use them, and being comfortable with those things, and encouraging them to look into the other ordinances and to be able to go study that more. But this is the limited set, and this is what the Shorter Catechism emphasizes, word sacrament prayer. And so the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains those and talks about those in detail in questions 82 to 107. And the breakdown of the Lord's Prayer there is magnificent. It is an excellent explaining of the model prayer. And so, if you have not read it recently... I would strongly encourage you to do so. The next thing is conflict resolution, which we've just spent a lot of time on, so you all are probably pretty advanced there. You're like level 37 conflict resolvers. And so, being that far along, you already know what the three steps are. One-on-one, bring witnesses, go to church court. You know what the four G's are. You know what the seven A's are. You know what the four promises of forgiveness are. And you know what? If you forgot any of them, they're right there on the page for you. And there are some magnificent recordings that you can go check out. Page 10. Five references the five acceptable conclusions to a point of offense. Okay, so here, notice, I want you to, I want you to notice A, B, C, D, E, none of them includes the option to start a conflict and just messily run away from it, okay? That is option F, which is not on here because it's not acceptable. So, what is acceptable? Options A, B, C, D, and E. There are five of them. What are the five options? One, you get into a conflict, and you hear some explanation, and you go, you know, I'm not sure that what I was accusing you of actually is sin, and I'm choosing to accept your explanation and to give a a charitable interpretation of what's going on, I withdraw the accusation. That does not mean that you accept that the person was doing everything perfectly. That does not mean that you have concluded with absolute metaphysical certitude that the other person was righteous in everything they did. That means I am no longer really confident in what I was accusing you of, and I withdraw it. B, Choosing to overlook things that are minor. You know what? I brought this up, and I don't think this is a big deal. I'm going to drop it and not go talk about it with others. I'm not going to talk about how I withdrew a thing and then keep talking about it. When you withdraw something and you overlook it, you are choosing to apply the promises of forgiveness without, without the person repenting. Because... You've determined that it would be not helpful, not for the person's good, to make that a focus. C. Choosing to accept a just defense resulting in charitable interpretation. So it's not just ambiguous, but the person actually explains, and you go, you know what, you were right. I was wrong, and you are right. Not just, I'm not sure, you're right. Okay, so first one, not sure, I withdraw. Second one, yeah, I think I'm right. But you know what? I've decided after pushing on a little bit that this was wrong to push on, and I'm withdrawing it, and I don't think this needs to be the focus. And you don't spread it around. You apply the rules of forgiveness with it. The promises of forgiveness. Then there's you are right and I am wrong, I withdraw. The fourth one, D, is the other person goes, You're right. And you go, Thank you very much. I thought I was. That's why I brought the charge. And so, when they tell you you're right and they repent, and there's an external repentance, then you explicitly forgive them. E, you push, they reject, and you think it's worth fighting. And so, what you do is you go to the next level. That's it. These are lawful ways to end. We do not bitterly hold on to stuff. We do not bitterly keep bringing stuff up. We don't do whisper campaigns. We don't just refuse to deal with conflict. We don't just create disorder. We do this. Imagine this being applied versus this being rejected. The cultures are very different. This being applied makes it so there's an orderly, peaceable community. And this multiplies out with network effects when you have more people. Imagine you have a society that doesn't do this, and there's, you know, a few dozen people. Okay, you kind of manage it. You're trying to deal with it. There's some blow-ups here and there. Okay, now imagine you have a couple hundred people. Without the peaceable behavior, this is just a fractious, constant blowing up environment. All right, church authority. People need to understand that the church has a right to call you to appear before a governing body to deal with a matter of discipline or to assemble if you're a part of a council or to assemble for public worship. This is a part of Vow 10. I think it's also a part of Vow 7. You have the church has a duty and an authority to teach, and you have the duty and the authority to judge. The church has the authority and duty to lead you in worship, and you have the authority and duty to judge the worship and to either participate or protest it. If you protest it, you need to bring it up. The church has the authority and duty to issue censures of rebuke, suspension from the Lord's table, or casting people out of the church depending upon the details about that. We've talked about that in the, church, uh, in the conflict resolution section. And you have a duty to examine that and to determine if those are justly applied. The church has a duty to provide officers for the sake of order, elders and deacons. And you have a duty to judge those officers if they are qualified. The church has a duty to provide organization for the work of ministry, and you have a duty to participate in that work. And so that work of ministry looks like making sure that the doctrine is taught, the worship is done, and government is dealt with. And that includes seeking to gather the elect by taking the gospel out to the world and making it so that we have a public assembly if we are not under physical murderous persecution. The church has a Authority to receive money in the form of tithes and gifts, and it has the authority to use them in three ways to pay officers, to equip the saints, to do work like having a building to meet in, having books to be able to use, having the resources that are necessary to do the ministry, and mercy ministry. That's it. Those are the three lawful uses of the money. Your responsibility to provide it and to judge that we are using it properly. Twelve, weekly public worship, frequent hospitality, the communion of the saints, fellowship and the tithe. These things are all over the scriptures. The principle of the Sabbath is obviously explained in the fourth commandment, but we have morning and evening worship, and you need to understand that. And On a basic level, Psalm 92 is a place that really obviously teaches that there's morning and evening worship on the Lord's Day. The church or the assembly of the saints is one continuous body with the church of the Old Testament. The synagogues, the assembling of the people of God, the convening of the people of God in the Old Testament is something that continues into the New Testament. We are the same church body. So understanding that helps to make it so that you can read the Old Testament, you know, 75% of the Bible is the Old Testament. Flip through it and figure that out, but 75%. If you do not think about the idea that the church is the assembly in the Old Testament, you're going to miss out on tons of stuff that applies to the assembly in the New Testament. There are two types of breaking of bread that are central to the Christian life. The breaking of bread at the Lord's table and the breaking of bread from house to house. You see this in Acts chapter 2, with the initiation of the New Covenant Church, an emphasis on that. That should be characteristic of our lives. We should be hospitable with each other, inviting each other from house to house, and we should be coming to the Lord's table together. Hospitality from house to house, we should be frequently hosting and having it, if we are able, and frequently accepting it, if we are not, and even if we are, and seeking to be useful in it. So for example, if you're not hosting, you know, you might want to try to bring something to help with it, or if you're not hosting, you still want to help with the conversation being fruitful. If you are hosting, you're trying to create an environment where there can be useful conversation and useful ways to work with each other and to bless each other. The communion of the saints. God has given you gifts. He's given you goods And both of them are for you to serve the brotherhood, to serve each other, and to glorify God. You have a duty to use your gifting and to use your resources to bless each other. And you have a duty to work together to figure out how to glorify God. That's the fellowship of the saints. You have the communion of the saints so that you can fellowship in doing work. And again, the principle of the idea that as you work together, you're thinking about the tithe is a part of that you give the first fruits to God, so that means you pay earlier rather than later. And that means that you also are paying 10% of pre tax income. Now, that is designed for the purpose of helping us to trust God and at the same time to make sure that the kingdom work is financed. Page 11 Daily work, family service, and secret and family worship. The household is where daily work generally should occur. Households are called to give a heritage of wisdom and wealth to the children. There is a place for daily bread to be given there, which means material bread, food to eat, and secondly, spiritual bread, and that's more importantly, so that there is a provision of the word of God. Deuteronomy 6 talks about the word of God needing to be applied to everything in the house. This is the place where your dominion is most clear and most broad. Govern your households well. If you govern your household well, then you have opportunity to do more. Every husband is the master of the home, the husband of his wife, and the father of the children. And every wife is the mistress of the home, and therefore the queen of the estate. The wife of the husband, under his authority, but also ruling with him and the mother over the children. And they both have a duty to make sure that everybody in the household is put to useful work, because idleness is the great destroyer of those who are not particularly mature. There's a danger, when you don't know what good works to do, that you will just be tempted to go amuse yourself, and to go find things that are not fruitful, and in fact destructive. So good works that fill the time, that Master and mistress of the home are called to make sure that people are put to good and useful work. And there's a duty to provide education and to have right worship, and that occurs by making sure that everybody is engaged in secret private worship and family private worship. Secret private worship is worshiping by yourself, with God, alone. It's communing with God. The only people that can be present in secret private worship are you and God, or if you're married, you can, because of your one flesh union, Do that with your wife, with God. That could be secret worship. And if you have small children who are incapable of doing worship on their own, or people who are disabled and need somebody to lead them in worship, you could include those people. So that's an act of necessity and mercy for them. So secret private worship is where you read the word and meditate on it in private, where you pray to God privately. And that's where you can really confess your sins in a more full way. Right? And you can examine yourself and lay bare your sins before God, asking for forgiveness and power to overcome in a way that you can't in other places. You sing psalms. And there are three things that are occasional. Okay? A, B, and C, word, prayer, and psalm. These are the regular elements of private worship. The last three, vows, thanksgiving, and fasting, are irregular. You can vow, you can swear to God to do something in private. If you're doing that a lot... You are doing it wrong, probably. Or you're like in a war. I mean, something, something really big is going on and you're having to swear things to God and asking him to save you from really big calamities and you're offering swearing to do things in those type of scenario. So, vows are occasional. And thanksgiving, where there's some great blessing that God is giving, where you devote a day to giving thanks to God, Or there's some religious thing where you're saying, I'm asking God to spare me from a calamity or to give me some great blessing. You can fast. And the setting apart of a day for religious fasting is sort of a vowing to give that day to God, by the way. And so that idea of setting apart the day for Thanksgiving or fasting, private individuals can do that for themselves. Those are occasional elements of worship. Family worship is private. It's not a public institution. And you have the same thing. You have word, prayer, and psalm. But then you have oaths and vows because you can actually swear things to each other as well. And a lawful authority of the house can call people to swear to the truth of a statement. There's the head of house can call a day of thanksgiving. The head of house can call a day of fasting when there's something that the house needs to give thanks about or fasting when there's some great calamity or some great blessing to be asked of God. That's when fasting can be called. So these are the elements of, pri- of of family worship. And one of the things that happens with the word is it's no longer just one person reading, studying, meditating. Now there's people talking to each other. So you have teaching and exhorting out of the word. And in addition to that, you actually have what's called holy conference, where there's discussion of it with each other. And so those are the elements of family worship. We have walked through all of the things That a person now who is established in the faith as a child, ready to be a young man, would need to know. So, we talked about this. It took this morning, it took this time at the end of uh, the evening worship to talk through that. But hopefully, those things are overwhelmingly familiar to you. And it's about being able to organize those and to be able to show to other people that you understand them. Not that you can prove them from the scriptures. Not that you could explain them perfectly in a way where you teach somebody else magnificently, but can you show a basic understanding of these things? And that is what it is to be established in the faith as a child so that you're now a young man. All right, so comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.